Oh, I've forgotten what it was now. It's about, I can't remember, six, seven years ago. We did a series on Daniel, Book of Daniel, and that was one of the most, for me, it was most one of the most rewarding series that we did. So much in there, and I thought it's it's really time to revisit that book. Um, a lot of years have gone by, so it's not going to be the same same thing. Hopefully not. I, I trust that we've all that I've moved on in the seven years or whatever it is, and maybe I'll be bringing to you certain things that I didn't see last time. But uh, we're going to be starting a series on the book of Daniel this morning. So if you want to find Daniel in your uh, Bible, I suppose starting a, a new book like this, I could spend the whole sermon giving an introduction, uh, that would be highly possible and perhaps you'd learn a lot from it, but I I can't be doing with that really. I'd rather get straight into the book. And suffice to say that the the book itself, it introduces itself, we'll get an idea of what's going on in the first couple of verses here. It will set the, set the scene if we look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Let's have a little bit of background information because we see here that Judah has gone into captivity, Babylonian captivity. I'll take it back, um, back I think about 350 years. That is when the tribes of Israel, they divided. Twelve tribes of Israel were united, one kingdom, but then after the death of Solomon, who was the son of King David, after Solomon, he, uh, and during the reign of Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, there was division. There was a division and ten of the tribes, they set up a, a, a northern kingdom called Israel under the kingship of Jeroboam. But that's not what we're looking here at today. That northern kingdom of Israel was actually taken into captivity about a hundred years before what we're reading today. They'd already been um, taken over by the Assyrians a hundred years earlier. What we're looking at today is the southern kingdom of Judah. When there was that division 350 years earlier, two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they established a southern kingdom called Judah. And uh, within the southern kingdom was Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. 
350 years have moved on since that split and since the southern and northern kingdoms were established. And now what we're looking at here is the southern kingdom of Judah besieged by the Babylonian forces. The Babylonians under the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. It can be seen in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem in the third year of Jehoiakim. He was the third to last of the kings of Judah. And the siege didn't just happen. The Babylonians didn't just turn up. uh, The the king didn't just think, well, it would be a good idea to um, take Jerusalem and Judah didn't just happen. As was seen in the the first reading when I read to you Jeremiah chapter 25, over many years the Lord had sent his prophets to the Jews in that southern kingdom. The Lord sent his prophets calling on them to repent, saying, turn ye again now every one from his evil way and from the evil of your doings and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers for ever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands and I will do you no hurt. Alas, that message from the messengers of God, the prophets of God, it fell on deaf ears. There was no repentance and the people even killed the prophets who were sent to them. For example, in the very next chapter to the one that I read earlier, in Jeremiah chapter 26, details are given of a prophet of God by the name of Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, who was killed by the sword of none other than King Jehoiakim, the the king that we read of in verse 1 in Daniel here. So the prophet of God was killed by the sword of King Jehoiakim and his dead body was thrown into a common grave. That's how much they thought of the prophets of God and the message that they brought, a message of repentance. And then moving on, 600 years or so, God sent his only begotten son into the world And Jesus came preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Still that message of repentance being proclaimed, not by the prophets of God anymore, but by the Son of God no less, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the humanity of Jesus, because of course the Lord Jesus Christ is God and he is man born of a virgin. According to his humanity, Jesus was a descendant of King David, of the tribe of Judah. And just as the Jews rejected the prophets of God and their message of repentance, and they killed those prophets, well, the Jews did not receive the Son of God either. They rejected him as, and they delivered him to be nailed to a cross and crucified. Let's have a look at verses 3 through to 7. 
And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favoured and skilful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, the king's food, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. The king of Babylon gave orders to his official Ashpenaz to take the cream of the crop of the Jewish children, Jewish youth, to be trained up for service in the Babylonian empire. There was no question of choosing common folk or poor street kids. They had to be of noble birth, they had to be of royal blood, nothing but the best. They had to be handsome, intelligent and teachable. The hand-picked candidates were enrolled on a three-year degree course during which time they learnt the Babylonian language and literature. It was a time for change with respect to their identity, their customs, their values, their loyalties and even their religion. So much so that upon graduation they would stand in the palace of a pagan king, the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and they would be in his service. They would no doubt be presented as examples to the Jewish captives on how to be good Babylonians. We saw in our earlier reading in Jeremiah 25 that um, that the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity for 75 years. And so these young people, the cream of the crop from the Jews, were raised and indoctrinated in the ways of the Babylonian to be an example to their country folk on how to be good Babylonians. During their three years of study and indoctrination or brainwashing, they did not have to slave over a boiling kettle or a packet of instant noodles like other university students. King Nebuchadnezzar saw to it that they received the same excellent food and wine each day that the king himself consumed. That in itself would have been part of the indoctrination and the transformation of those impressionable young teenagers from being Jews to becoming Babylonian idolaters, albeit high-class ones, highly educated, extremely privileged, when you appreciate that the king's food that was served to them and was nothing but the best 
would not have conformed to the Jewish dietary laws. It would not have been kosher. It most certainly would have been consecrated to idols. But a good way of getting to someone is via their belly and just attempt them with some delicious food. Amongst the children of Judah that were taken to Babylon, there were four boys whose names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. I guess that most of you will have heard of Daniel. You might not be so familiar with the names Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. They figure prominently in the following chapters of this book and chapter 1 introduces us to them. Verses 6 and 7 give details of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah being given new names. Quite a lot of detail just on a name change and you'd have to think, well, what is the big deal there? Why spend a couple of verses telling us about them changing their names or having their names changed? Well, it was a big deal. Let's have a look at those two verses again, 6 and 7. Now, among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Note there in that uh, their, their names, these four young men, teenagers if you will. Two of them there, Daniel and Mishael, their names end in L, L, E-L. That's a name for God. It's, remember these are Hebrew names. And that's a name for God with the E-L there. What about the other two there? Hananiah and Azariah. The Ayah, I-A-H. That is a name for Jehovah God or Lord with capital letters that we have in our Bibles. The covenant name of God. Can you see that those four young Jewish men had very godly names? And those names were full of meaning. Daniel means God is my judge. Mishael means who is like God. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Azariah means Jehovah is my helper. Very godly names for those four young men. However, as part of the indoctrination and transformation process, the godly Hebrew names of those four boys were substituted with those pagan names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, which all um, refer to idols, pagan gods. You can see what's going on there. Change the names. That's That's an easy thing to do and an obvious thing to do. If you want to indoctrinate someone, change their name. Get rid of their godly name and give them uh, a pagan name. Then verses 8 through to 14. We'll have a look at those verses. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs, 
that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who have appointed your meat, your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee ten days and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. At this point, it's as well to uh, restate, to emphasise that the reason that the Lord gave King Jehoiakim and Judah into the hand of the Babylonians was that they had forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and they had hewed out cisterns, dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they'd forsaken the one true God and they turned to worthless idols and they'd refused to repent, to have a change of mind and to follow God, to worship God. However, throughout history, God has reserved to himself or for himself a remnant of people who by his grace have trusted in him and have not bowed to the gods of this world. And all through all through history, I was going to say all through the Old Testament, but all through history, God has reserved himself a remnant, a, a number of people. We, uh, the elect, I often talk about the elect, people chosen by God before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy in his, um, and and without blame in his sight people who will who will in time to come trust in the lord jesus christ the remnant a godly remnant of people and as we shall see in this chapter in and in the chapters that follow those four teenagers were of that remnant they were of that remnant of godly people who did not bow the knee to Baal, to, to, to worthless idols. And they did not forsake God. And of course, that was all by the grace of God as well, that they did not do so. There were others, other names that you'll know about. Abraham, for example, he's referred to as the father of the faith in the Bible. Abraham, he was in the world to thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. Two thousand years. Now one day Jesus, he was um, disputing with the Pharisees, the religious Jews, and he said to those Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. And those Pharisees, they, they, they said, what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. And as I said to you, Abraham was in the world 2,000 years.
before Jesus was born of a virgin. Even so, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. As to what that exactly means, I tend to think that Abraham, he understood the promise that God gave him that a saviour, a deliverer would come into the world and uh, and that and Abraham was trusting in the salvation that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come into the world. As to when, Abraham, I'm, I can't imagine he would have known that Jesus would come into the world 2,000 years later but he certainly had a hope that was looking ahead to when his saviour would come into the world and he rejoiced, he was glad. Abraham was someone who looked heavenwards to a heavenly Jerusalem whose builder and maker is God. This world was not his home. He had a hope that reached up to heaven because he was trusting in the saviour who was to come into the world. Abraham was of that godly remnant and there were others as well Moses, we all know Moses don't we Moses was in the world 1500 years before Jesus came into the world and yet we're told in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses he esteemed the riches of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. He forsook everything. He forsook all his privilege as a prince of Egypt because he too was looking ahead to Christ coming into the world. Moses was of that godly remnant. And I can go on and I will go on. I'll give you one more example. My Personally, my favourite example of all. Job, the book of Job. I don't know when that book was written. I don't know when Job was in the world. Suffice to say it was hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Redeemer means kinsman redeemer with an emphasis on the man. I know that my Redeemer lives, that he shall stand on the earth in the latter day. Can you imagine that? Job, who was an Old Testament saint, he knew that his saviour, who was a man, his redeemer, a man, would stand on the earth in the latter day. And then he goes on to say in the very next breath, and I shall see God with my own eyes. Put that together. The man, the kinsman redeemer that Job was looking forward to seeing, he says, I shall see God. He knew that his saviour, who was to come into the world, is God. Now, Job must have been not talking about when Jesus came the first time, but when Jesus comes the next time, when he comes and everybody will be raised up and judged before the throne of Christ, including Job. But Job, like all the saints of God, look forward to that day when Christ comes again to take them, to be with him forevermore and they shall dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. How wonderful that is. Abraham had that hope. Moses had that hope. Job had that hope. And you can be sure, we're not told in clear terms here in the book of Daniel, but you can be sure those young men, those four young men, they had that hope. And that becomes more and more apparent as we go through this book, that they were truly godly men.
or, and, and trusting in the Lord. So they were part of that remnant. Coming back to those four young men, although the Babylonians changed the names, changed their names, they were not able to change their hearts. As can be seen in verse 8, when it came to the royal food and wine that was allotted to them, it is written, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine that he drank. We can assume by what follows that not only Daniel, but all four of them had that same resolve. None of them had any intention of eating the king's food and drinking his wine. Do not imagine that Daniel was not partial to good food and wine and that he only ever ate pulses such as chickpeas and lentils and he only ever drunk water. Mind you, having said that, one of my darling wife's most delicious meals is her lentil curry and another one of her culinary delights rather is her chickpea curry. Delicious. Daniel most certainly enjoyed good food, like the rest of us. We can see that to be the case in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, where it is written, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. And so he was fasting. He was mourning, he was fasting. He goes on to say, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. So he he was someone who enjoyed a glass of wine ordinarily and flesh, that's meat, flesh is meat. He would ordinarily eat meat. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. It's just that he did not want to eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. For some reason, Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. That's what it says in verse 8 there. Look at verse 8 again. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. That word defile is very revealing there. It means pollute. Daniel did not want to pollute himself with the king's food and wine. Uh, most likely it, it was not kosher, it was not um, prescribed in God's law as something that could be eaten. Um, and it, in, most likely it was consecrated to idols, as I've already said. If ever there was a temptation for Daniel and his three friends to compromise on their faith and to embrace idolatry, that would have been it, with all that delicious food being set before them, But those four men of God, young men of God, did not succumb to temptation. We're going to be looking at that a lot more. Not succumbing to temptation. Daniel politely requested of the king's official that he and his friends might not defile themselves with the king's food. However, even though God had softened the the eunuch's heart, the, the, the king's, the, the eunuch, he was the king's 
senior official, he had softened his heart towards Daniel. Even so, he feared that if he gave gave the four young men some other food instead of the king's food and the king's wine and their appearance suffered, he, he was scared that he would lose his head. After all, the king was a tyrant. Consequently, the king's official, although his heart had been softened by God towards Daniel, even so, he would not um, give Daniel some alternative food, um, pulses and water to wash it down. But that said, he didn't say no either. He didn't rule it out. So Daniel tried another channel. He was not one to give up easily and say, well, no one can accuse me of not trying before feasting on the forbidden fruit. He persevered and he made the same request to Melzar, a servant who was subservient to the king's official. He was under the king's official who who, who had not granted um, Daniel's request. The lower the, the lower the the servant under uh, the official did grant his request. Daniel employed a strategy of pleading for a ten day trial period, and the servant agreed to it. Let's have a look at fifteen through to the end of the chapter, verse fifteen through to the end. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus, he's a king of the Medes and the Persians. They took over from the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians. In these verses I've just read to you, we see God honouring those who honour him. And above all else, we see God working out his purposes, which amongst other things involved ensuring that those four godly young men would graduate, that they would be appointed to positions of authority and influence in a very ungodly kingdom. I say that because verse 15 tells us that they fared better on their diet of pulses than all the others. It most likely was a healthier diet, granted. But being fairer and fatter in flesh than the others was no doubt largely, if not entirely, due to God's intervention. 
Then there's verse 17. Let's have a look at that one again. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Very clear, who gave them that understanding, that knowledge, God gave them that, gave it to them. And in verses 18 through to 20, it's clear that God honoured those four young men before the king of Babylon, who found them to be way ahead of the other student, ten times better, no less, than the others. And they stood before the king and they communed with him. There are a few considerations that I want to leave with you. First of all, we ought to pray most earnestly that God would raise up godly men and women and place them in positions of influence and power in our pagan land. Do you know when I was saying my little bit after the notices this morning, it wasn't, it's probably somewhere in my mind because I was going to be preaching on it. It really is something on my heart that we should be praying, praying most earnestly that God would raise up people, godly people, to, to take up positions of power and authority in this land. We've seen that God can do it with those four young men in the Babylonian Empire, no less. Four young Hebrews, godly, and we see that they remain godly. We've seen that with God, all things are possible and God can do precisely what he wants to. Secondly, not just Daniel, but also Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah made up their minds not to defile themselves by eating the royal food as tempting and as delicious as it no doubt was. As such, they refused to be guided by their bellies and by the lust of the flesh. Instead, they determined to be obedient to God's law. It must amount to that. That refusal to defile themselves, to be polluted, they would have had it in mind, God's law, about what they could eat and what they could not eat. A law that made it very clear to them what was kosher, not kosher. That was far more important to them than what a pagan world offered to them. Even when, even the very best that this world had to offer them, they said no. We will not defile ourselves. The king's official, who was given by God a tender heart towards Daniel, was nevertheless guided by a desire to remain alive and to not lose his head. By way of contrast, the four godly young men had no such concerns about their own lives. They were more concerned about being obedient to the word of God. That was more important to them, being obedient to God, than remaining alive. That is something that will become much clearer further on in this book, just how determined they were, single-mindedly determined, to be obedient to God, even at the risk of losing their own lives. Even so, their acceptance before God was not the result in their determination to be obedient to his law. 
In fact, you can be sure that like us, and like everyone else, all four of those men, I keep calling them godly young men, all four of them most certainly would have been hell-deserving sinners. No doubt about it. Their acceptance before God most certainly would have been entirely in the beloved Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who 600 years later became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as their saviour from sin. Again, they would have been looking ahead to Jesus. And they would not have imagined, if uh, I don't know how much they would have understood about what would happen when Jesus came into the world, but one thing you can be sure of is that they would not have thought when the Saviour comes, the promised Messiah, who is spoken of in the Bible, in the, in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, he won't be nailed to a cross and crucified because we're such jolly good people. Not at all. Anyone who's trusting in Jesus recognises first and foremost that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Even so, even so, they held God's law in high regard and that is a godly characteristic. Put it another way, if, you, if your father is God, or God is your father, it, it wouldn't make sense for you not to hold his law in high regard. It would be ridiculous. You don't expect our politicians to hold God's law in high regard. They couldn't care less about God's law. But if you're a Christian in here, it, it can be reasonably expected that you have a very high regard, regard for God's law. So applying this to New Testament Christians, we no longer need to concern ourselves with dietary laws and with a whole range of other laws that God gave to the Jews of old. Laws such as, such as observance of various holy festivals and holy days that were attached to, to those festivals, all of those things were abolished at the cross. They were for the Jews only. What matters now is what has always mattered, even in Daniel's time, even in, um, the, even in Abraham's time, at any time in history, the thing that really matters is a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he was obedient to God, that he was obedient on your behalf. Never mind your own obedience, as important as that is, as a Christian, but that Jesus was obedient in his life, on your behalf. And in death, he was your sacrifice for sin. Even so, if you really are a child of God, saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust that in the inward man, that is in your heart and in your mind, you hide God's moral law and you delight in it. God's laws, the laws that were written by the finger of God on tables of stone, laws which are all about loving God with your whole being, and loving your neighbours, yourself, even unborn babies, loving them as yourself, or especially unborn babies, I don't know. God's laws, you hold those laws in high regard. 
and you delight in those laws. And it grieves your spirit when you see this wicked world with its ungodly leaders embracing and delighting in immorality. As a Christian, you most certainly do not have a flippant and nonchalant attitude towards sin, especially your own sin. You draw on God's grace and his power to keep you from evil and to put to death the evil flesh. You don't just succumb to temptation. That looks nice. That smells nice. That feels nice. I'm going to do it. Never mind what God says. I'm going to do it anyway. That is not the characteristic of a Christian. You make it your sincere prayer that God would work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Last of all, let's remind ourselves why it was that God delivered the Jews of old into Babylonian captivity. It was because having forsaken him, there was no repentance from the people. Consequently, they were sentenced to 70 years of captivity. Sounds like a long time, doesn't it? 70 years of captivity and the Babylonians were not pussycats. They were a nasty piece of work. The the Babylonian captivity was not a holiday. It was not a walk in the park. That is for sure. There's a very serious warning for anyone who has not shown repentance towards God. The fact of the matter is that like me and everyone else for that matter, you have sinned. You come short of the glory of God. Your own righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. Therefore, repent, believe that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has kept God's holy laws on your behalf and that he has paid the penalty for your sins at the cross. And stand up before God, washed in the blood of his dear son, and clothed not in your filthy rags of self-righteousness, but clothed in garments of salvation and the righteousness of God, instead of being clothed uh, in your sins. As a child of God, trusting in Jesus for your acceptance before God, and with thanksgiving in your heart, for so great salvation, draw on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to do that which is pleasing to God and to God be the glory. Amen.